And please turn in your Bibles uh, to John chapter 1, uh, which was on page 1064 of uh, the Church Bibles. And also inside uh, your service sheet, hopefully you will find an outline of uh, where we'll be heading uh, tonight as we begin this new series, The Gospel According To. And uh, no, it's not according to me, uh, which is good news. Uh, It is according to Andrew, uh, the disciple Andrew, the very first disciple that we will be uh, looking at tonight, seeing the gospel uh, through his eyes, through his experience as he met Jesus. So let me pray for us and then uh, we'll turn to John 1. Father God, we thank you uh, for all that we've already done together tonight. We thank you for the joy it is to praise you. Uh, We've just pray that you would reign in us and we do pray now that as we open up uh, your word, uh, the word of your gospel, the gospel about your son, that we would see him clearly. I pray for myself that you would help me uh, get out of the way really as uh, we see uh, the wonder of the gospel and we pray for each of us that uh, as we look into your word that that is exactly what we would see. We would see Jesus and in seeing him that we would trust him and love him. Amen. Well, I'm sure you know uh, that feeling that comes to you when you sense that you're on the edge of something big, uh, the new adventure or the new experience or perhaps just that feeling that comes when you know change is on the way. Perhaps for you it's holidays tomorrow. You can see it, you can taste it, you're, you're almost there. It's, it's a few hours away. As you uh, picture that first sunset of the holiday, that, that feeling of uh, the first wave if, if you're going uh, to a beach and you dive under the wave, just that moment, the taste of food, it's, a, it's the taste of freedom, isn't it, food on a holiday? Do you know that feeling? That feeling uh, when something big, some new change is just around the corner. Well, the picture uh, on your outline, uh, if you've got it there, is a, a moment just like that, a moment filled with anticipation, It's a train station, a platform, and one suspects a train is just around the corner. And if you look carefully, you can see a businessman who's obviously got his back to where this train is coming from. And then in the corner, you've got a group of friends obviously absorbed in some sort of banter, distracted, not that interested in the train that's on the way. But then there's a boy standing, waiting for this train, straining his neck to uh, to see what's coming around the corner. And for the others, I imagine when this train does pass by, it's really no big deal. They've seen it all before. Can't see the wonder of it. But for the boy, this is it. This is the main event of the day, perhaps of the week, perhaps of life so far. He is going to see the train. Everything else has faded into the background and then the moment comes. You can imagine it, can't you, as the train actually pulls into the station and he shouts, look, the train is here. Well, I want to put it to you tonight that being a Christian is like being this boy. Being a Christian is knowing that what we've been waiting for has arrived in Jesus Christ. The Christian gospel is essentially that simple. It is the good news, look at Jesus, behold Jesus, see Jesus. For those of us who have seen him, who have come to trust him, know that in seeing Jesus we see the one who not only made us, but made us to know him. In seeing Jesus, we know that we are seeing the very glory of God. We are seeing how glorious God really is. 
We are seeing how full of grace and truth our God is. We are seeing how much God loves to forgive sins that he has done it. We are seeing how much we are loved by God, loved like a father loves his children. That's the gospel. See Jesus. Behold Jesus. And being a Christian is is like being this boy on the platform shouting, look at Jesus. And in a world, an announcement like that is going to feel like it did probably for this boy. Childish, foolish, an overstatement. Hardly the main event of life. But that for me is what's so wonderful about the passage before us tonight. Because what it shows us is the power of the gospel. The power of shouting like this boy, look at Jesus. And really uh, the passage, and I hope you've got it open by now, John uh, chapter 1, going from verse 35, really it's answering one question for us. It's the question uh, that Kate uh, raised earlier in the service. Having heard this announcement of the gospel, having heard this declaration, see Jesus, and that's really what John the Baptist does for us in verse 36. What happens when that announcement is made? What happens when somebody declares, look at Jesus? What happens if you do turn and look at him and begin to investigate him? Well, that's what we see uh, tonight through the experience of the disciple Andrew. And uh, the first thing I want to look at is in uh, verses 37 and 38. Really, we have here the very first steps someone makes when they turn to look and investigate Jesus. Have a look at verse 37. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Here we're shown two on the path, two who have heard this announcement, behold the Lamb of God, John the Baptist has said for the second time, look at Jesus. And that's what they do. They turn, they look at Jesus and they begin to take their first steps towards him. Not as disciples at this stage, although the, uh, the verse says following there, it's a, it's a far weaker word than the word uh, disciple that we usually associate uh, with Andrew and the other disciples. At this stage they're, they're following but at a distance. What we're seeing here is a person taking their first steps towards Jesus. Two people saying, I'm prepared to look into this. And we've seen this before, haven't we? It's the conversation uh, you have with a friend uh, or a colleague about Jesus that doesn't shut down straight away, that, that lingers for a little while. They ask more questions, they explore it that bit further. Or it's the unprovoked question that someone asks you about your faith. It's the person accepting an invitation to a guest event or coming with you to church, making those first steps, having a look. It's someone being willing to read a book that you might have given them and then to chat about it afterwards. That's who Andrew and the other one who's not named, I assume he's John because he's reticent to name himself, the writer of this gospel. That's who they represent here, following Jesus at a distance not knowing at this stage how far they're going to take this walk with him. Not sure yet what they make of Jesus, but they're willing to follow him for a little way. And they know about Jesus. They've heard about him. They've heard this announcement by John the Baptist, but they're standing back, taking only small steps at first. That's quite normal, isn't it? As people start to look in at Jesus, you see it all throughout the Gospels. You see this big crowd around Jesus all the time. 
But many of them are just on the edges, just looking in, seeing what all the fuss is about. It may even be tonight that that's exactly where you're at when it comes to Jesus. Or perhaps where members of your family or or friends are at, happy to be around Jesus, happy to ask all sorts of questions about Jesus, to explore things. Lots of people are happy to to sort of take steps towards him, aren't they? For all sorts of reasons. Some are just fans of Jesus. He's an intriguing person, a personality, a, a teacher who said amazing things. Some hang around him because he's a miracle worker. They're drawn by that. The hope perhaps of, a, of some sort of miracle in their life, some sort of change. And some are there just because they want to be right. If there's knowledge to be had here, then, then I'm in, count me in. And some are there because they feel guilty. Things are in their past weigh them down and, and no matter how many times people say, you don't feel guilty about that. That's in the past. It, it doesn't go away. You want to be told you're okay and perhaps Jesus is the one to do that. But here's what's so helpful about our passage. Look what happens when you start to look in at Jesus, when you start to make steps towards him. Verse 38, turning around, Jesus looked at them. Looking into Jesus is not like looking into anything else. You know, I've dabbled in a a bunch of different hobbies uh, over the years. Uh, One of the more recent ones was learning the guitar. I'd love to learn the guitar. I'd love to be in the band uh, playing. I'd just love to do that. But uh, Liz even gave me for my birthday how to learn the guitar uh, for dummies, basically. Uh, I opened it once or twice. We even got a second-hand guitar from a friend, but uh, that hobby's been and gone. The book sits forlornly on the bookshelf, never perhaps to be opened again until perhaps maybe one of my children pick it up. We look into all sorts of things like that, don't we? We, we start to dabble with them and we think, oh, I'll just put that away. And it's easy to make that mistake with Jesus because to look at him involves just doing that, involves picking up a book, the book that you have in front of you, the Bible. It's an impersonal object. It's just a book. Yes, it's God's word, but, but it's written on paper, isn't it? Printed there. It's a book that you can close. You can do pretty much whatever you want with it. If you want to read it, you can. If you don't, you don't. It, it makes no demands on you. But looking into Jesus is far more involved than that. As you read about Jesus in this book, as he is actually revealed in the scriptures, you, you're seeing a person, not an object, a personal being. And that's a whole new kettle of fish, isn't it, when you're investigating, looking at a person. When you start to get, a, get to know a person, you start finding out who they are. You look at what they're about. And as you start to relate to them and you get deeper and deeper into that relationship, you start to have to make concessions, don't you, if, if you're really going to get to know someone, really spend time with them. Eventually, sometimes you even have to put your will below theirs, submit to them. And we do that all the time in our uh, personal relationships, don't we? I was thinking about it uh, when it comes to movies. Liz and I, we've we've watched lots of movies together but we're still not together when when we talk about what makes a great movie. I remember while we were still going out, uh, we went and saw the movie The Thin Red Line. Has anyone seen that movie? Now, I'm pretty sure it's the greatest movie ever made 
I've seen it three times, once with Liz, the other two times alone, because she wasn't interested the second time. But I remember coming out that first time thinking, that is the best film I've ever seen. And she was hoping the whole way through, I was thinking it was the worst film I'd ever seen and uh, she was just desperate to get out of there. Totally different tastes. And yet she submitted and uh, put herself through three and a half hours, I think it went for, this movie. (laughs) And I've done the same. I've sat through The Princess Bride countless times, (laughs) even though I am sure it is one of the worst movies ever made. And we do that, don't we? We submit, we, we concede along the way. That's Relationships 101. Without it, there is no relationship. If you don't submit, the other person pulls out. And that's what makes relationships so hard, this give and take along the way. But there's even more to this one because Jesus is no ordinary person. He's not my mate or my buddy or my movie-going friend. He's God. He's described in Colossians 1 as the one for whom, by whom and through whom all things were made and all things hold together. Now, if all personal relationships are going to involve surrender and service and submission along the way, then what makes me think this relationship will be different? If Jesus is the one who holds all things together, and that's who Andrew and John are looking at it as they make these first tentative steps, then looking into Jesus is not going to be like looking into anything else. It's personal. And not just any person, it's a personal God. And so verse 38, as they turn to look at Jesus, he does the same thing. He turns and looks at them. This investigation is a two-way process. As we size up Jesus, he does the same to us and his insights are incredible. He knows us better than we know ourselves and as you follow John's Gospel, you see this again and again. In just a few verses, he'll meet Philip and he'll tell him about the fig tree that he was under before they'd even met. He'll meet Nicodemus in in the dark of the night and he'll he'll totally expose Nicodemus. He'll meet the woman at the well in John 4 and he'll pin exactly what her issue is that no one else has done. After meeting him, she says, come meet the man who told me everything I ever did. That's who turns and looks at us. Investigating Jesus is not like investigating anything else. As per usual, C.S. Lewis captures it best, this, this process of starting to look into Jesus to investigate him. He says, there comes a moment when the children who've been playing at burglars suddenly hush. Was that a real footstep in the hall? There comes a moment when the people who have been dabbling at religion, man's search for God, suddenly draw back. Supposing we really found him. We never meant it to come to that. Worse still, supposing he found us. So it's a sort of a Rubicon. One either goes across it or not. But if one does, one may be in for anything. And that's what we see next again in verse 38. Having seen these two walking towards him, having seen them making their tentative moves to look into him, Jesus asks them a question. What do you want? What are you looking for? It's the question that sooner or later Jesus asks all of us as we take him seriously. What are you expecting to find here? 
What are you looking for in life? I mean, something's missing, uh, John, Andrew. I mean, that's why you're here, I assume. And you can see it in their response. They call Jesus rabbi, master, teacher. They're hoping to sit under his teaching for a while, hoping that he'll, he'll have some answers for them to sort of get a bit further in life, to, to make more sense of it. But Jesus is asking a far more fundamental question than that. He, he's not asking what information do you need, what, what advice can I give you? Now this is more basic. What do you want from life? What's it all about for you? What's the, the anchor of your whole life, the, the thing that everything is pulled towards? All things are shaped by, all your decisions, all your actions. What is that for you? I don't know whether you've ever been out uh, on a boat, a little dinghy or something like that, fishing, and there's that moment where you, you find a good spot and, and you throw the anchor out and as you start to release it, it's fine at first, but then very quickly you feel the pull of this anchor and it's really wrenching its way down, looking for something to dig into. That's what Jesus is driving at here. What is that for you? What is that anchor that everything is drawn towards? Because he says the opposite of, of having that is, is to be adrift in life, swayed by every tide, be weightless, with no way of deciding which way to go, no way of deciding what's important and what's not. But here's what's so helpful about this passage. It shows us why people look at Jesus. It shows us why people would make these first steps. It's because we're built for an anchor. We're built to have one thing that drives us, one thing that life is all about, one thing be the main thing. We yearn for it. But what's so hard for us is that the one thing that we choose actually ends up exhausting us rather than fulfilling us. It depletes us. You could say, I live for family. That's my one thing. I live for my children. But I've heard countless uh, stories of people, I've met with people who, who that's what they've lived for but it, it comes up short. Whether it be children who, who turn and reject that love or whatever it might be, it depletes us rather than fulfils us. Then there are those who live for relationships. There's the woman at the well in, in John 4 who's, who's had four husbands and now is rolling the dice a fifth time, failed every time. Perhaps it's just prosperity. That's the picture in John 6. just leaves us hungry for more. The thing that drives us so often doesn't fulfil us. And so what Jesus is getting at here is that there must be one we are yet to find, one purpose, one anchor that will fulfil us rather than exhaust us. And so rather than wait for their answer, they do give one, but it has nothing to do with his question. He gives the answer in verse 39. Come and see. I am that one thing. I am what you want, what you long for. And so he says, come and you will see. And really in calling uh, these two men, Andrew and John, to come in this passage, he's calling them to three different things. Firstly, uh, he's responding to their question where they've asked, where is he staying? He says, well, come and see. Come and dwell with me. They called him rabbi. They, they wanted to be his students. They wanted to go to his house, maybe sit there for the afternoon 
But Jesus is calling them here to be full-time students. And we're not talking about an afternoon lecture or some long-distance learning on CD. Jesus is saying, come set up home with me. Leave everything and come dwell with me. And as they do, their whole life is to be rearranged, reshaped around that relationship. Come live with me, Jesus is saying in verse 39. Set up your home with me. And the remarkable thing about him saying that is in John 1.14 we are told that Jesus has come to this earth and he has set up his home with us. It's an amazing verse, John 1.14 and now we have that Jesus say to us, come set up your home with me. In fact, more than that, come make your home with me. That's the first thing, come and dwell. The second is, and this is perhaps the biggest call of all, he says, come and follow, really follow, not from a distance, not with these tentative steps, come and follow. The call Jesus makes here and elsewhere in the scriptures as, as people make these steps towards him, as he calls them to come, is to a call to total obedience, total allegiance. Come and trust me. Everything is going to be changed. Everything is going to be rebuilt. Now that's a scary thought, isn't it? If you're making these tentative steps towards Jesus and, and you, he turns around and he says, I want you to throw the whole lot in with me. And you think about this question that he asks, what do you want? How can this be it? How can submitting to another's will totally, being under someone else's authority, how can that be what I want? Well, it can be when you see who Jesus is and the difference he makes. It can be when you see the one you are submitting to is the king and he holds your life in his hands anyway. Well, How do you relate to a king like that if it's not to come to him totally? He can't be your gopher, can he? He can't be the guy who gets your things in life no matter how good they are. He can't be the person that you submit to only when his will is in accord with your will and your ambitions and your desires. Yes, I'll come to you, Jesus, but you need to know that my life right now is all about my family and my children. That's what life's about for me. No, Jesus says, it's actually about me. It's time to pull up that anchor and ground your life and your family, for that matter, in me. I'll come to you, Jesus, but at this point in my life, my passion is my medical degree. I'm going to get through this course, I'm going to specialise as a surgeon and and that's going to take time and effort and hours and all my focus. That's what it is for me for the next few years. No, says Jesus. I want you to be a doctor. I gave you the skills to do it. But your time and your efforts and your focus and your passion, they're mine. And I will teach you to shape them as seems best to me. Trust me, says Jesus. I'll come to you, Jesus, but you need to know that for the first time in my life, I'm in a stable relationship. I'm with this great guy and I'm happy. At last, I'm happy. And I know he doesn't follow you, but this may be my one chance to be happy, to be satisfied. No, says Jesus, I'm your satisfaction. I'm enough. Trust me and I'll take care of the rest. The only way you can possibly come to Jesus to hear this call and respond properly is to come completely, 
mind, heart, behaviour, passions, everything, submitted completely to his will, his purposes. Now that's a big call, isn't it? It's a big call on Andrew and John making these first tentative steps. It seems as as they make each step, as they get closer and closer to Jesus, the call gets bigger, not smaller. When Jesus says come, it's a total demand and he makes no apologies for that. But again, here's what's so good about this passage. Whenever Jesus calls us to come to him, to follow, calls for this sort of level of obedience, this sort of trust, as scary as it is, he calls us that way because he knows that with that comes joy and fulfilment like we have never known. Verse 39, he doesn't just say come, does he? He says, come and you will see. It's a call to adventure. Come and see what I have in store for you. Come and see what real life looks like. That's very scary, isn't it? I mean, what if he asks something of me that I'm not prepared to give? What if there's too many risks involved? What if there's too big a cost? Well, of course there will be. Again, C.S. Lewis in the Narnia Chronicles paints a a beautiful picture of, of the choice before anyone who comes to Jesus. In this wonderful picture, you've got God portrayed as a lion and then this little girl, Jill, coming before him. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only with a a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, she realised that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling of the noise of the streams was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. He didn't say it as if he were boasting, nor as if he were sorry, nor as if he were angry, he just said it. I daren't come drink then, said Jill. Then you'll die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming a step nearer. Then I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. As Jesus says, if you are truly my disciples, you will obey my truth and the truth will set you free. The Christian is the one who knows that with Jesus there is true freedom, that what we've been waiting for has arrived in him. Come and see. That brings us to these last few verses as we see what it is that we would see if we come to him, the change that he brings. Come to Jesus and see everything changes, everything. For Andrew, uh, the first disciple after what must have been an incredible night, First night dwelling with Jesus, he awakes a changed man in verse 41. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Christ, we've found the Messiah. Everything changes. And as we finish, let let me pick up three big changes that come when when you take steps towards Jesus. Firstly, come and see new joy. 
Come to Jesus and see joy. Andrew awakes and he says to his brother, we have found the Saviour. He's like the little boy on the platform. He's arrived. The king is here. I've met him. Come and see. This is no quiet, uh, subtle discussion between brothers, uh, a carefully worded apologetic argument to his brother Simon. No, this is just a guy bursting with enthusiasm. I have found him. It's the joy only a free man can feel. The ultimate risk in his life has been taken away, the risk of standing before God and coming up short, the risk of having God say to him, I never knew you. Come and see the one who takes away my sin. Come and see the one who brings me back to God, who says he'll stay with us. Come, he says to Peter. Seems like a risk, but not when you see what coming to him means. Secondly, come to Jesus and see new purpose. Andrew's whole modus operandi for life has changed forever. First thing he does, do you see it? New priority, calls his brother. Here we see the spilling over of his joy. He can't help himself. It's the enthusiasm that comes when he knows he's hit the jackpot when it comes to the answer to Jesus' question. What do you want? I've found the answer. He's like the boy on the platform shouting out this news. And while Simon responds to him, don't be surprised if your announcement, your declaration that, that you need to come and see Jesus is met with indifference. If it ever is, remember this passage. Firstly, remember that the process of coming to Jesus is a slow one. It's not instant. Slow steps, sometimes over years. And secondly, remember as you say, look at Jesus, you are saying that to a blind person. And so pray and ask for God's power, ask for him to open their eyes. And thirdly, keep saying it. I often think of this passage because I share the disciple's name and then when I think of the passage I think of my own brother who's not a Christian and in lots of ways he's a successful man and over many years I've been tempted to think when he's expressed to me a dissatisfaction of some part of his life or an unhappiness in some way that maybe if he didn't act that way in relationships he'd be happier or maybe if he wasn't so career driven, such a workaholic then he'd have more joy like he did when we were kids. But the truth is he doesn't need less of these things. He needs to see Jesus. That's my job, to keep showing Jesus to him and to be patient as Jesus is here with Andrew and as he was with us. And finally, come to Jesus and see a new identity. Now, one of the joys of fatherhood is naming your children. I've had this joy about eight weeks ago when we had our little daughter Evelyn uh, arrive I named her. Actually, in truth, Liz named her and uh, I went along with it. But uh, (laughs) no one has a right to change that name. That's her name. She's stuck with it. I think it's beautiful, but uh, that's it. But have a look at verse 42. See the change that Jesus brings. Come to him and you will be made new. Simon, Andrew's brother, stands before Jesus, named Simon by his father John, we're told in the verse, and Jesus says to him, you are Simon, you will be Peter. You will be Peter, which means rock. Come to Jesus and he changes even our identity. Now that's important news. If you're someone trying to make a name for yourself, 
Or if you're someone whose identity is bound up in in what you do or, or what you've achieved or would like to. A Christian's identity is fully bound up in who Jesus is. Everything else is a subset of that. And it's wonderful news for anyone who thinks they've made a hash of life, who wants a second chance. You are Simon. You will be Peter. Now, I think, uh, as I said, every time I look at this passage, I, I can't help but uh, think of my brother. And uh, one of the uh, vivid images of our childhood was standing on a, on a jetty fishing together. And uh, we'd fish for, for the whole day. We'd get there in the morning and we'd be there still in the afternoon. And slowly we'd catch a few fish, nothing, to, nothing uh, too spectacular, but there they would be in this little bucket next to us. I've got this photo of that moment of us on a jetty in Lauriton. I'm in these uh, ridiculous 80s clothes, bright yellow I thought I was cool at the time. And there we were and and as I think back to that moment, I think about this passage and I think that if I was there again with my brother and I know what I know now about Jesus, I'd say to him and I'd point at those fish sort of flapping around in the bucket and a few on the jetty and I'd say, without Jesus, that's who you are, Charles. Gasping for air. You were made to be with him. What you've been waiting for has arrived in Jesus. If you are not his disciple, you are a fish out of water, not where you should be, gasping for air. Come and see, says Jesus. Give yourself fully to him and he will give himself fully to you. Now when you see who he is, that is the deal of the century. Let's pray.